0: We're in the final two weeks of a series we've been running through the summer called Summer of Prayer. I honestly thought y'all would get bored with this series because it's on prayer, but uh, I've seen the the crowd grow. I've seen people uh, with lots of interest. I've gotten some tremendous feedback on this series and I'm thankful for that because prayer should be core to who we are. Next week to close the series, I will not be here. Uh, I'll I'll actually be out there sitting with you and my wife. I don't get to do that very often church. I'll be taking church in with her because Mark Moore will be teaching. You guys remember Mark? He's awesome, fantastic teacher. We have not seen him for a couple years. It's been a long COVID winter. And finally, we're getting some some guest speakers back in this year, so he'll be here. He's gonna teach on evangelism prayer, which is wheelhouse for him. Um, Today, I get to teach you on a fifth type of prayer. And it's one I am particularly passionate about. Um, It's called confession prayer. Prayers of confession, confession prayer. Now, confession prayer is pretty self-explanatory. You probably already know, What I'm talking about And when it comes to the technique Of confession prayer uh, It's really honestly pretty easy God here's my sin Here's my stuff So I think that when it comes to uh, To our problems With confession prayer Very little of, uh, of it has to do With technique at all I think the problem That most of us run into with confession prayer Has everything to do with Theology Theology not technique. It is our shoddy theology that ultimately undermines our ability to confess well. Now, um, not everyone has had the same experience with confession growing up, especially if you grow up in the church, I acknowledge that. Uh, for example, if you're a Catholic, when I say confession, you have a very different idea that comes to your mind than let's say if you're a Baptist and I say confession, right? And who's right? Well, let's go out on Main Street and duke it out, right? Let's say that's that's what it feels like. But it's a very different idea. Catholics. When I say confession, I know you're in here. This is Louisville. So when I say when I say confession, what well, comes to your mind? Right, like the little wooden box <laughs> at your parish, and you go going in. Forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. How long has it been since your last confession? child let's not talk about that father let's just gonna get this off my chest yeah that's that's how it goes right and then what you do is you receive the the sacrament of reconciliation through your honest confession and through the penance that the priest then prescribes to you say this many hail marys make restitution with your neighbor whatever it may be familiar to anyone okay what were you catholics who didn't confess is that what you were was is it familiar to okay maybe a few of you now On the flip side, if you grew up in like a non-denominational sort of evangelical Protestant context like me, confession was much different. See, we were taught that you don't have to go to a priest. Rather, you can go straight to God, which I believe is true. So when I was a kid, I remember I was taught, you know, every night, Tyler, before you go to bed, down on your knees, you talk to God and you tell him, you tell him all the bad things you did that day. Tell him all the bad things. In case you don't wake up, you tell him all, right? So you tell him all... (laughs) Tell them all. The, seriously, like that was the subtext of youth group. You tell them all, right? You tell them all. And then, like, you would comfort yourself because, you know, you'd be told in, in youth group, God forgives and he forgets. He forgives and he forgets. So, even though this is like day 103 of this sin, dear Heavenly Father, you never believe what I've got to confess to you today. And this was kind of the mindset. Um, we also had this special time of confession in my church each week that we called communion. That's the same thing as what we do here, except in my my church context, you know this, like we were taught that communion was a time for meditation. So what that meant was there would be a soft piano playing maybe a hymn, no words, just a hymn. And you were supposed to sit there in your seat and feel really bad for like a minute or two. You think about, you put Jesus there. You feel really, do not come to the Lord's table and partake in an unworthy manner. Okay, so you feel really bad and you think about all your sins for a second or two, and then bread, juice, and voila. Same thing that happens when you come out of the wooden box voila, you're forgiven. That was confession. Now, if you grew up in church, chances are your experience of confession falls somewhere on that spectrum. It's something like that. And I think that there is a larger theological problem, though these techniques are different, there's a larger theological problem underneath that that I wanna call out today. These are examples of what I would call divine manipulation. And we've all been guilty of this over the course of our lives. I remember when I was in college, I actually went to a Catholic university, got my uh, theology degree from a Catholic college and it was a fantastic experience. You all know this. I love uh, my Catholic brothers and sisters in, in Jesus, but I had a couple of buddies who would go to confession. Every single Wednesday, they would go to confess, and then every single Thursday they would go to the party bus that would take students to drink in downtown Charlotte. And it was—they never missed either. They were rigorous about their confession. They were rigorous about the party bus, right? And so, eventually, I asked them. I was like, so "What do you think? Like, what do you think's happening here with this confession thing?" And basically, the way they described it was this: you know, on Wednesday. I pour my sin bucket out and then on Thursday, I fill it right back up. It's just like, that's how it worked. And to me, that felt like divine manipulation. And the little prayers that we pray before bed or communion, the heart underneath them is basically the same. If I do the right religious ritual, God will be obliged to forgive me and I'm good. We basically use confession to receive as much forgiveness as possible with as little life change as possible. It is a weak attempt at salvation by works, which is heresy, by the way, salvation by works. And it denigrates the gift of God's grace with half-hearted, lukewarm, sterile ritual. And that's only one distortion of confession. I've got another for you. That's the one most of us experienced if we grew up in church. But today, there's another distortion that's becoming increasingly popular in contemporary churches that I think is just as warped, and honestly, uh, it's probably even more sterile when it comes to its capacity to change your life and give you freedom from sin. And sadly, it's the approach that we are handing down to our kids and allowing them to grow up on. Okay, this style of confession is what we might call... um, uh, the complete and utter disappearance of confession Because it's just gone Like today I have found That confession has basically disappeared From most contemporary churches That's because we live in this sort of you know, Church culture today Where every church has in their you know, Vision statement or whatever Be yourself, you belong Come as you are, everyone's welcome No one's perfect this is a grace place. I always like that one. Um, and that's nice, by the way. I like we want that culture here. That's nice. But in many cases, it's created an aversion to facing sin at all. Because of the offense of sin. Because we know that it'll shrink the crowds and you'll end up getting called a Pharisee or judgmental or a bigot or hateful or something like that. So we just make sin not that big of a deal. It's all positive vibes, Jesus and hope. Jesus loves you just the way you are. And, uh, and confession becomes non-existent. Now, look, when you erase sin from your conversations, and then not even your pastor is allowed to talk about it without people losing their minds, you know, thou shalt not judge, pastor. What do you think is going to happen to Confession. effort to erase sin, by the way, in our cultural moment, we're changing the language around it. It's just a little, it's a little mistake. It's a little white lie. It's just a bad habit, an error in judgment. The HR term is, you know, an, an area for growth. <laughs> and I mean, that's all fine, but it serves to trivialize sin. So what does it trivialize it? Then we blame our sin on others you know, we blame it on previous generations. Or we blame it on you know, what our parents did to us or our church did to us or what the government did to us or what the constructs in society are doing to oppress the authentic me or whatever, right? Just find something else to blame it on. Or we just deny the reality of it. See this often today. In the church, S- sends that fall into unpopularity in terms of our popular culture. We just pretend like they're not, you know, the Bible doesn't really say that, right? Never mind the churches believed that for 2,000 years. Like, if you, if you read it like this, then what you'll see is, you know, it's not very popular in my high school. So, what you'll see is that, according to this TikTok theology video, the Bible doesn't really say that. I heard one sociologist uh, describe our culture today. Uh, like this. I thought it was interesting. He called it a therapeutic culture. Therapeutic culture. By that, this is what he meant. He said uh, basically, what's right and what's good today, high schools, you gotta pay attention to this because it's the water you're swimming in. Okay? What's right and what's good today is basically determined by whatever gives the individual a sense of psychological well being right now. That's the moral compass. If it makes me feel good, right now, if it feels right to me in this moment, then that's what's right. That's what's good. That's what I should do. This is literally where we get all the popular phrases like follow your heart, you do you, you know, achieve your dreams," make your own truth, all that from. It's from this sentiment. And if you try, by the way, to stand in the way of anyone doing what they feel like is what's best for me right now, that feels good. If you try to stand in the way, then you're the bad guy. Okay, so one historian said it like this, and bear with me. Okay, here, don't, don't cast judgment too quickly, but um, they said, in previous generations, people confessed sins to priests. Now all we do is confess our struggles to therapists. And here's the thing, I'm down for therapy. God knows most of us need it, right? Like, it's a good thing. There's a mental health epidemic happening as we speak in our country. But we live in a therapeutic culture, culture. That says, they're there. God will not take your sin that seriously. They're there. Someone else is to blame for your trauma. They're there. You just follow the voice in your heart, even if it cuts against science, even if it cuts against generations of conventional wisdom, even if it cuts against the sacred texts of your faith or whatever. They're there. Just feel good about yourself. Too many churches are preaching this today as gospel. They're there. God loves you. And God does love you, by the way. He loves you so deeply. But if you sever the reality of sin from the gospel, then it's no longer the gospel, at least not the gospel of Jesus. It's the gospel of self-esteem. They're there. You don't have to hate yourself. You don't have to change yourself either. You don't have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, which are literally the words of Jesus. Jesus loves you just the way you are, but so much so he refuses to leave you that way. It is not cheap grace. Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's got a grip on this, okay? Pretty compelling story. We'll talk about somebody who was a theological genius. Karl Barth called his PhD dissertation a theological miracle. Also, he died standing up against the Nazis because he believed Jesus told him to, right? So pretty big deal here. This is what Bonhoeffer says. He calls calls cheap grace out. This is not what he believes, by the way. This is the way he sees grace represented wrongly in the church. He says, grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance. And because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? But then he hammers cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace... Is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on to say that true grace is costly grace. Costly grace, he says, is costly because it condemns them, but grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, after all. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Hmm. Okay, summary. Let's bring this to summation here, summary. Uh, The reason why I believe confession is so impotent in our churches today, boils down to two theological distortions, and these are the two. One we might call salvation by works, and the other we might call cheap grace. One we might call divine manipulation, the other we might call trivializing and erasing sin. Or one we might call a lack of appreciation for the freeness of God's grace, and the other a lack of appreciation for the cost of it. It's free, yet it's costly at the same time. And I get it, that makes absolutely no sense. Or these are words that we don't usually hold together, but the freeness of grace and the costly of grace must be held together if you want to experience true confession. And when we can hold both of those ideas together in our mind, it's, it's crazy what happens. You can actually look at yourself in the mirror in all your guilt and all your shame and all, all your sin, be totally vulnerable with God, totally honest totally motivated to change, without doubting for a second your belovedness in the sight of the divine and yet knowing at the same time that he had to die because of what you're looking at in the mirror. It's incredible, supernatural, perhaps. Now, uh, one of the greatest examples of this in scripture is Psalm 130, Psalm 130. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Psalm 130. Uh, We're gonna read that here uh, briefly. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the Psalms are, are basically the, the prayer book of ancient Israel. In, in the Psalter, we have 150 hymns and prayers that were a part of our spiritual ancestors' daily life. You wanna know the songs and the prayers that shaped Jesus growing up? Read the Psalms. These were their creeds. Uh, these were their petitions to God. And by the way, Psalm 130 is one of seven penitential psalms. You know what a penitential psalm is? penitential psalm is just a psalm that's focused on confession and repentance. So if you ever struggle putting words to your own confession. Uh, Do I have the, the list here? Here are the seven penitential psalms. 632, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. 51's probably the most popular one. Many scholars believe it's the, the prayer David prays after his adultery with Bathsheba and kills her husband. 32 uh, is another very, very popular one. But today I want to hit Psalm 130. And the reason why is Psalm 130 is exquisitely disorienting. It holds together the freeness and the costliness of God's grace artfully and just Melodious psalm, right before the Lord. So Psalm uh, 130, a song for uh, for pilgrims ascending to Jerusalem. The psalmist writes, from the depths of despair, O Lord, I call for your help. Hear my cry, O Lord, pay attention to my prayer. Lord, uh, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O Lord, could ever survive? But you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I've put my hope in his word. I long for the Lord more than centuries. Long for the dawn. Yes, more than centuries. Long for the dawn. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is unfailing love. His redemption overflows. He himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. Word of the Lord. Now, can you feel just the disorientation there? You feel it? Okay, so let me just give you some of the really obvious contrasts to just jump off the page. Because the psalmist takes us on an emotional roller coaster. First, we see despair almost immediately turn into rejoicing. Eight verse. You see it? The psalmist says, from the depths of despair, I call for your help, God. Or there's a recognition here that sin should not be celebrated or justified or twisted to fit our own desires. Rather, it should be despaired over from the depths. And yet, the psalmist also cries, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, there is unfailing love, his redemption Overflows In the first two verses, the psalmist cries in despair, and the last two, despair, turns into rejoicing. He's holding them together. Uh, we also see justice and freedom. Justice and freedom. The psalmist writes, If you kept a record of our sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive? Or in other words, this is an acknowledgment that we deserve the death penalty, if you will, for our crimes. And yet he says he himself will redeem Israel from every kind of sin. Redemption is a slavery metaphor, by the way. To redeem one means to literally pay the price and purchase them out of slavery. So what the psalmist is saying here is that God has paid our debt and purchased us, purchased our freedom out from under the tyranny of sin. Uh, next we see fear, but fear with assurance. Assurance. You offer forgiveness, he says, that we might learn to fear you. This is probably the strangest sentiment in the whole psalm, right? At least for me. Because we see the psalmist like trembling with adoration that the God of the universe to whom we owe everything would forgive his perpetual rebellion. And yet he says, I'm counting on the Lord. Yes, I'm counting on him. I have put my hope in his word. Sheesh, like this psalm, man. this This psalm is like, it's like a theological casserole. Stay with me. <laughs> that, that bakes together flavors and ingredients that we never would put together otherwise. And it turns out quite delightful. Uh, in his celebrated book on prayer uh, called uh, Prayer, <laughs> uh, Tim Keller makes the case that the tension that we see here in Psalm 30 between the freeness of God and the costliness of God's grace is actually the plot line of the entire Old Testament into the new. So you know what the plot line of the Old Testament is basically, right? Okay, so beginning with Abraham, God makes a covenant with Israel, the people of Israel. He says, you're gonna be my people and I'm gonna use you to bring blessing to all the nations. That's his side of the bargain. Their side of the bargain is is pretty simple. In return, what I want from you is obedience, fidelity, Your exclusive worship. I want fealty. That's the deal. Blessing for obedience. Now, immediately, you get into the story of Abraham, you move through Genesis and the patriarchs into Exodus and the wilderness and Israel. And you find out really, really quickly that Israel's not equipped to keep their side of the covenant. They just don't do a very good job of keeping it, it's the human condition. So they break the covenant with God over and over and over again. And it creates this question mark throughout the Old Testament that we see Israel, we see Israel's leaders, we see the prophets constantly wrestling with. Is God going to still keep his side of the covenant? Because he didn't have to. He'd be totally justified rendering the covenant null and void because Israel broke their side. So is he going to keep it? What part of his character will prevail, his holiness or his love, his justice or his mercy. What's God gonna do? Now, as we fast forward into the New Testament, what do we see? Well, quickly, we see that the answer to the question, holiness or love, justice or mercy, the answer to that is yes. Yes. In Christ, yes, praise God. Holiness or love, justice or mercy? Jesus says, "Yes." Second Corinthians chapter one verse twenty says, "For all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding, yes, yes." So, uh, to put it plainly, in Jesus we receive both free grace and a costly calling to obey let me say it like this jesus offers us both unconditional acceptance and unrelenting transformation now most religions offer transformation most religions will say do these 10 commands or follow these five pillars or you do the do do the pilgrimage you know meditate pray whatever do these things and, and you'll receive the favor of god only problem with that system is you're always left wondering have i done enough Like, how good do I have to be? Am I on good terms with God or not? Because I was doing pretty good, but the last couple months, not so much, right? Most religions offer this. Now, on the flip side, some religions offer the the other, though. They offer unconditional acceptance. Just come on in. You're here with—you can be here with us, open arms. But they don't really change you. There's not a whole lot of accountability or critique. You can just be whoever you want to be. So this is what I love about Christianity. It is so uniquely balanced in this regard. Because in the moment you decide to follow Jesus, you are unconditionally accepted, like 100% forgiven. Doesn't matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, how much guilt or regret is in your past, in that moment, it is 100% forgiven. And yet, also in that moment, there is an expectation put on your shoulders that you're also 100% work in progress. It's the blessing of sanctification, if you will. Because the expectation from that day forward is that you grow by the Spirit in Christ to the glory of God. Until the day you meet Him. Now, now you know who who gets this, by the way? Uh, You know who has built a manifesto of confession that profoundly embraces both the freeness and costliness of grace at the same time? Know who's done this well? The alcoholics, the addicts, AA. Have you ever just like actually read the 12 steps, all of them and just processed them? So I remember several years ago, Bob Cherry and I were writing a sermon series on the 12 steps and how they're kind of like a path to spiritual formation. And to prep for the series, I got with a few of my friends who I knew were in AA um, and, uh, one of them was like, have you ever just read the all 12 of them? You, you've got to, let me, let me walk you through them. It's funny. He's like, look, when I started listening to your preaching and started really understanding God, you know, through, through what, you, what you were saying, what Bob was saying, I started seeing the 12 steps in like everything y'all were preaching. In fact, I started to wonder if you and Bob <laughs> were, anyway." he's like, but I, anyway, so let me, he's like, just let me, let me start you through it. So, um, it's amazing. I just want to read the 12 steps to you. I'm just going to read them. Look at the profound wisdom here, how they hold the costliness and freeness of grace together. And they are in chronological order for the record. That's important for you to know. Step one, I've replaced alcohol or alcoholic with, with sin here, just so it applies to all of us. So step one, um, we admitted we were powerless over our sin, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power, capital P, greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step four, we made a search. Ooh, this is good. It's tough. This is good. We made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, we admitted to God, to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, uh, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, we humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, another good one, we, we made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, then we made amends. We made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would, would injure or hurt them. Step 10, uh, we then continued to take per, uh, personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11, we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And then step 12, having had a spiritual awakening, and I promise you if you do those first 11 steps, you will have a spiritual awakening, my friends. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other sinners and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. A plus, they get it. This is a full-bodied, robust, comprehensive, systematic approach to confession. Can I spiritualize it for you? This is what the journey through sort of Christian virtues will look like if you follow the the 12 steps. We call it the the process of of repentance. Uh, First, it begins with humility, and then that humility transforms into trust in God, and that uh, transforms into surrender, Complete and utter surrender. And then that surrender transforms into self examination. And that self examination transforms into honesty. That honesty transforms into reconciliation and restitution. And that transforms into persistence in the process. And that persistence transforms into proclamation to others. And that proclamation to others transforms into rejoicing. And man, it is rejoicing. Again, it's the process we called repentance. And repentance doesn't have to be a sad thing. It doesn't have to be like, repent, you know, like a three-syllable, word, repenta, you know, like it can be happy, like you could, it's good, confession, it can be good, especially when it's that. Did you know that Jesus framed his entire ministry, by the way, around repentance of sins? In Mark chapter 1, 14 through 15, very first read letters in the gospel of Mark. Very first words recorded by Jesus in the gospel of Mark. And for what it's worth, most scholars believe Mark was the very first gospel written down. So these are the first words of Jesus written down. You ready? Later on, uh, verse 14, after John, John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins. Repent. No, it's like repent. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. This is good news. It's good news. Uh, Another historic example of someone who really just brought these two threads together, the costliness and the freeness of of God's grace, is uh, Martin Luther. The story of Martin Luther. Now, this, is, this is not Martin Luther King Jr. kids, okay? This is the, like 16th century Martin Luther, the OG Martin Luther, which for the record, I like all the Martin Luthers I've read about. They're great, right? This is, this is the only reason you're not a Catholic Martin Luther. Okay, is that Martin Luther. Now, uh, seriously, if it won for this German priest, okay. So first he almost got struck by lightning. Okay? And then um, after he survived that one, he was like, I'm gonna become a monk and a priest. You know, praise God. <laughs> so he becomes a priest. And um, as he is uh, practicing the priesthood, he becomes a professor of theology at the University of Wittenberg. He, he still feels this intense guilt. He's given his life, vows before God. Spends his days studying, meditating, and praying over the word, but he feels this intense guilt that somehow he's not good enough. Until... He studied God's word and came to realize that God's grace was free. It was by faith, not by works. And this led to his infamous and quite public break from the Catholic church. You see, he was not pleased with the way the Catholic church was selling indulgences. You ever heard of indulgences? Basically, they were selling, you could purchase forgiveness with money from the church. Works-based salvation is what it was. Uh, So in response to that He wrote his 95 theses Which would eventually get him killed And you remember what he did with those theses Took them and he bam Nailed them to the door of the castle church In Wittenberg in 1517 Now um, there were two central themes To the 95 theses The first was sola scriptura Scripture is the central religious authority For us Christians And the second one is that scripture says salvation is by faith and faith alone, not works. So uh, basically, uh, Luther, to summarize here, was a part of a church, to put it charitably, that appreciated the costliness of God's grace, but he experienced a spiritual awakening that impressed upon him the freeness of God's grace. And he brought them together in one word. Any guesses? Repentance, repentance. In fact, do you know what his first thesis of the 95 theses was about? Well, I'm glad you're curious. Let me read it to you. (laughs) This is what what he wrote. He said, our Lord and master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance basically he argues that as we come to the realization that something so costly was made so free to us in christ we begin to trust this god and as we trust god we confess our sins to him with more confidence and urgency rather than shame and timidity and then a snowball effect of confession begins to radically transform us like the more we confess the more we repent, and the more we repent, the faster we change, and the faster we change, the fuller our humanity, and the fuller our humanity, the deeper we experience the abundant life Jesus desires to give us, praise God. So look, repent, it doesn't have to be a sad word. Confession does not have to be a moment where you beat yourself up a couple minutes so that you can take communion and be forgiven. It's a beautiful thing. This is a process and a cause for rejoicing. Repentance, confession, it's the engine of joy in our lives. And I wish people would celebrate it like this. I wish people would celebrate their forgiveness and redemption with the same intensity that they celebrate their sin. You see, I'll go up to people and be like, hey, tell me about your life before Jesus. Oh man, all of a sudden, like the stories, oh, you never believed, bro. I wore the town out you're drinking and the girls you're all right and then you'll come to church you'll see them in church you're like won't even sing I'm like come on man you've been set free free act like it now you can do that uh, you can do with that what you want church people Um, but I want to close by offering an invitation to those who feel stuck in sin, those who might be, uh, you know, the the non-church people in the room, those who have not been set free. Today could be your day. I understand how how most of us got where where we are, I do. I've seen it happen over and over in ministry. Here's what happens. People come of age, okay, like they get out of college get into like their 20s or 30s and they have what I call a pre-life crisis. Now, this is not your midlife crisis that comes in the next decade, okay? And it involves buying nicer cars or whatever. It's a pre-life crisis because all of a sudden, reality hits. You see, what happens is in your 20s and your 30s, you actually figure out that you're just not that special after all. Like other people are also really good at the things you thought you were good at. Now you grew up, right? You grew up in the age of therapeutic reinforcement. The gospel of self-esteemism was sowed into your heart. So you believed, you know, I'm a snowflake and I can do anything I set my mind to. I can change the world. I can be CEO by 27, start my own business, end up in on Shark Tank, right? Just release the awesome within. That's what I gotta do, right? That's what you were taught. But then by 30, you realize that none of that's just in touch with reality. So one moment you're like, I'm amazing. And then the next moment you're like, oh my gosh, I've just entered the workforce and she's, she's smarter than me. And she has 25 years experience. And I think she does CrossFit, cause look at that, you know, look at that. It's like one of those leveling out things that happens, you know, where you get a dose of the real world. Now, this leaves you vulnerable. This creates anxiety and insecurity All of a sudden you find yourself questioning your worth and purpose or you find yourself isolated and lonely or maybe even a a little bit lost and depressed. And then to medicate that, this is what people do, they slide into sin. That was previously unimaginable to them they become exposed to temptations that they never would have thought they would be exposed to before they become addicted in ways that they never want to admit and then pride gets in there because you don't want to confess your struggles to anyone right so pride causes you to go into image management mode you start pretending like i'm good while life is spinning out of control Underneath the service. Like on Instagram, your life looks fabulous because you're on a boat drinking a White Claw. And look at the clouds, right? But underneath the veneer of false joy, underneath all of the highlight reel, curated theatrics, underneath the theater, there's heartache. So I wanna tell you, uh, there's, there's a way out, there's a way, I have good news, there's a way out. There's only one way out. And it starts by confessing your stuff to God in the name of Jesus. You have to do it for the first time, you have to, and that's the hardest time. And then you have to learn how to keep doing it over and over and over. And But if you do, you will experience the freedom and the joy of a life of confession prayer. And that's a good thing. Hey, if you are justifying your sin with anything else other than the justification that comes in Christ, you are missing it. Our one defense is not self-defense. Our righteousness is not self-righteousness. No, it comes in Christ alone. He paid the cost, he's given the gift. It is free. And I'm inviting you in fear and trembling today to experience the joy, the joy of accepting him through confession. Corbin and Lindsay are going to lead us right now in a confession prayer song. And I ask you wherever you find yourself on the spectrum of faith today to sing it, sing it like you mean it. And then we're gonna partake of communion.